0: Greetings, and thank you for joining this, the eighth episode of Who Needs School with your host, Joe Vollert. I've specifically designed this episode to be posted on June 1st, 2021, in commemoration of the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre in 1921, and I'll talk about why I specifically wanted to do this uh, today. Our guest is Joshua Hunt, and we will discuss the buried history of the Tulsa Race Massacre, josh's own family story which i think you'll find very interesting and truly american and then we'll springboard that conversation about race into education so many of us talk about the role of schools and education and addressing issues around race how can we do that enjoy our conversation thank you well a warm welcome to my good friend josh hunt josh uh, thank you for joining our podcast, Who Needs School? No. Coach, thank you so much for having
1: me. Joshua Hunt, class of uh, 96 from SI. I just want to say thank you so much for having me on this podcast. And, you know, it, it seems like we've we've come a
0: long way from last year, from our first conversation, to where That's we right. are now. That's right. First of all, folks out there, Josh will refer to me as coach. It was a previous lifetime when I was head football coach out at San Ignatius in San Francisco. Yeah. Joshua was a great student athlete with us and uh, was part of a great basketball team. And I know he's still very close to the coach and many yeah. of his classmates and those teammates even to this day. And it was a year ago, just after a year ago, that Josh reached out to me as an alum of this school because yeah. we are recording this the day after the one year anniversary of when George Floyd was murdered. And yeah. as we all know, who've lived in this country and even around the world, that's been, proven to be a seminal moment. And that really started a conversation between Josh and me that led to a, an alumni town hall that we did yep. uh, to hear some of the voices of our alumni of color and their experience of growing up in San Francisco and going to St. Ignatius and their own professional experience. And Josh really spearheaded that. I'm very, very grateful for that. But more, more, even more so out of those, those great conversations, some real depth and in, in education and, you know, dare I say conversion, but a friendship. And I and I re- re- really appreciate that. We also are going to post this on June 1st. And I wanted to, to talk to Josh, you know, about schools and the experience that he had and the role of race in schools. And we're going to post it on June 1st because it's the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa uh, race massacre. And I wanted to provide a little background, a little more intro than I normally give on our podcasts. It was last summer during the pandemic. My wife and I decided to watch HBO's series, The Watchmen, which I highly recommend. It was fantastic. The opening episode depicts the Tulsa uh, race massacre in 1921, and I to introduce some of the main characters of that series. And I remember watching that. And I look, side note, I love American history. I studied it in, in middle school, high school, took a bunch of college classes, and I read history books, just devour American history in particular. And I, I remember watching this and saying to my wife, "That God, that's fascinating, but that never happened." And I paused mm. it and I looked it up on Google, and sure enough, that that happened. And it was a history that was buried out of fear and shame that has reemerged in the, you know, the, the recent decades. But I remember feeling betrayed, betrayed that I didn't learn about that in any of my American history classes. And that's where it just struck a deep chord in me that when we talk about systemic racism, there's a glaring example of that, that there's been a history that we've buried for ill purposes, and and that's not that's I'm an educator, believe deeply in education, and I just really felt uh, betrayed by that, and that was a real springboard for me, and I wanted to you know have this conversation with you specifically to commemorate that hundredth anniversary. No, coach, I I appreciate that. You know,
1: I. Went to St. Cecilia's for grammar school, obviously went to SI, and went to Howard University. At St. Cecilia's, we learned about the Civil War from not the the perspective of it was to end it for slavery. It was more of the different perspectives. It was from the perspective of keeping the Union together from the North, and for the South was state rights. And i found that so interesting at at the time and you know and and that's sort of where everything sort of stops is 1865 slaves were free and you really don't hear anything too much after 1865 until 1965 until the civil rights bill was signed everything else is pretty much is very ambiguous it is very is very unclear of, of what happened
0: yeah, you might get a little um, Brown versus the Board of Education, right? But yeah, that's yeah. that's about it, right?
1: Yeah, that's about it. You get Brown versus the Board of Education. I think that's in 54. Mm-hmm. And then you got civil rights in, in 65. But you don't hear about any of the other court cases or anything else that happened in between that. Went to SI. SI, love the school. Great experience. Extremely close with a lot of my classmates. But I, I realized and I want to say it was either my junior or sophomore year that this was, I I knew I was going to be moving to another area. I knew I was going to be going to a place where I was going to be feeling, I would say more included, even though I had a great experience there, I didn't feel completely accepted and it was no one's fault at all. It's just, maybe that was my own insecurities. I mean, I, I don't know, but growing up in San Francisco, the, the, what you, have the, what you have an understanding of being black is either you're super – it's either you're – it's low class or it's super upper class and there's no middle class there. There's no, there's no middle class for black folks. And I felt like I was stuck and I could not find my place there until I went to Howard University and I got around all these dynamic African-American people that were either going to school to become engineers, doctors – business guys, entrepreneurs, and I i felt at home. I was like, wow, I, I feel you just like- just didn't I, see I, I, that
0: in San Francisco, right? No, no, no.
1: It just, it, it's not, it's not there, unfortunately. And I remember my, it was my buddy, Brandon, I want to say my sophomore year, and we were talking, and I don't know how Tulsa, Oklahoma popped up, but he said, he looked at me and he's like, do you know about Black Wall Street? I looked at him, I said, Black Wall Street, what is, and he looked at me, he said, you don't know, do you? I was like, Black Wall Street? He's like, let me tell you, he's like, Tulsa, Oklahoma, 1919, 1920. I was like, it's Black Wall Street. I was like, it's, it was probably one of the richest time in Black American history. And so I remember I went to... Went to school. I went to my. I forget what class. I don't know if it was African American studies. And then we started talking about it. And you know, it was at the time it was six hundred different businesses. They had their own. They had twenty one churches. They've had. They had their own hospital. Their own school district. And one of the things that I remember really uh, popped out in my head was that their dollar stayed in the community thirty six times before it actually left. Hmm. Thirty six times. So that means that the dollar would probably stay in the community for a year before it actually went out. If you compare that to right now, the black community, it's six hours. As soon as I earn a dollar, it's going right out of the community. Wow. And I and, that, and, those, and those are studies and things that you, you can obviously you can pull up, you know, now. But those were things that really just sort of stood out. In my head as as I was learning this and you know, it it just like it was such a enriching time and I I felt so sad because I was like, gosh, I I wish I could have been a part of that. I wish I could have seen that. I wish I could have experienced that that energy and and to think that it got burned down to shambles that you had a mob of 10,000 white men come in and burn that whole city down and 300 people killed boys girls men women and all these people were now displaced and put inside refugee camps and they went and they tried to obviously they tried to get insurance you know to pay for the damages which were denied and that was it
0: i uh, also, there's a there's a great just to echo that there's a great um, article yeah. By Smithsonian Magazine in April 2021 that I highly commend to our listeners. And in that, the director of The Watchman actually says that there was there were 57 indictments from that massacre. All of them were, were black men who were indicted. And never, yeah. never convicted, but they they were indicted for starting this riot, as they called it, right? Anyway, continue. No, no. I mean, it, it's it's. I always just think about how far, how
1: much further we would have had been as a country if, and, and, and to me, it's like, it, how much better America would be if black people would truly prosper here in this country. How much further we would be, but it, there's, it's just, it's always it's just like before when i talk to my mom and when i talk to my uncles and when i talk to anybody on my side of my family they feel like their life here in the united states is just trying to get by cuz they feel like any time anything that's ever been there's there's all these barriers and obstacles in front of them before they're able to succeed
0: And just Uh, the generational repercussions of something like that, right? This is a stark example of what happens when a, an act of violence occurs. It creates fear in the community. And that was, it was swept under the rug out of fear in the black community for reprisals and whatnot and, and other consequences and swept under the rug out of, out of, I think, utter shame by the white community in Tulsa. And I think that's, you know, encapsulate some of the experience that we've had in our country over the last couple of hundred years. I yeah. it would I think it'd be uh, helpful for folks because because kind of tied to that was your own your your family's uh, migration to not to California. I think to Stockton originally, right? Yeah. Uh, if you yeah, speak yeah, to so that a little we'll, bit if you feel comfortable. Yeah. So my my
1: grandfather Wayman Hall, born nineteen nineteen June twenty second nineteen nineteen. His father was hung. He was a preacher. He was hung. uh, Where were they? Uh, I'm sorry? Where were they they living? They were in Dallas, Texas. Gotcha. Dallas, Texas. And I I don't know what the dispute was about, and I don't think we'll ever truly know what, what the full story was, but from my understanding that he was hung, he was lynched in front of a mob, and my grandfather became the man of the house at eight years old. And my family my grand, my great grandmother my grandfather and his two sisters they all migrated up to Stockton California and where they picked watermelon they picked tomatoes and that's that's what they did that's what they did at that time they migrated up to Stockton and they were you know my mother was the, the you know the youngest of 10 born in 1954 right in the middle of you know, of Jim, I mean, well, right at the end of Jim Crow. And yeah, it just, it was a very interesting time, very Mm -hmm. interesting time. But on the flip side of that, though, so my my father uh, was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. He was a wasp. Family migrated from England here in 1861. My great, great grandfather, John R. Hunt, from England fought for the first infantry for the union army. Um, He, and which is, you know, when you're doing your history, you're always hoping you're like, please be on the right (laughs) Right. side of history. Like, (laughs) like don't don't blow this hunts. (laughs) And, you know, they, they, I want to say they were probably some of the first settlers that came to Stockton where, you know, my, my grandfather was the Secretary of Agriculture for the state of California. And my father, who went to UC Davis, was grew up in the suburbs, the only child witnessed this, this crime where he saw this white individual doing vandalizing something. I think he either threw a smoke bomb or I don't know what the exact details were. But the police came and they arrested this black guy. And my dad, he wrote a letter. He went and testified and they still convict him and my dad was so um distraught and so just uh, deterred by by the system and he went off and he became a defense attorney and and so forth and you know luckily for the small little window of time my mom and dad met they were only together for for three years they got married they had me and Couple years after that was that the grace of God.
0: Thank God. (laughs) (laughs) And I know he died. You were what eleven when he passed away? Is that right?
1: Yeah, I was eleven. He was. I mean, I still think about him uh, almost every year. He taught me about Martin Luther King. He taught me about you know Gandhi. He just really just taught me the importance of really also speaking up for truth, speaking up for what's right. And he he told me he was like, look do what's right and he's like sometime the law is sometimes behind the truth always do what's right and hopefully the the, the law catches and, up yeah, exactly <laughs>
0: well you carry his deep sense of of justice in your in your core that's uh, uh thank you that's been thank very you. evident in our our conversations now yeah. i as you know I, I this isn't a history lesson, right? I wanted yeah, to no <laughs> wanted to use the, you know, this kind of moment in time again. Yeah. And I find it ironic that it's taken us hundred years to come to a reckoning with what happened in Tulsa. And this, this one year post George Floyd has really driven, I think, a deep awakening. In consciousness in our country, and it's you know it's an ongoing. There's ongoing tension, obviously. Yeah, but we're yeah. growing. You know, I my, I think like you lean on hope. That I hope that we're we're growing out of this. But whenever people talk about race and and justice in this country and and equity and inclusion, they schools always part of that conversation. Of course, and it's a big topic with every you know every company, but every school across the yeah. country. And so I I wanted to kind of springboard off of these historical occurrences to talk about school and then to also tie that into your your professional life. And sure, um, just kind of knowing sure. what you know and, and doing what you do, especially for, you know, the, the topic of our conversation. Yeah. What should we be doing? What should whether it's St. Ignatius or whether it's a secondary school or what is just education in general? How do you think we can address this in a healthy way to to help our country grow?
1: And, and so there, there's a couple of things. One um, is that y- your past and your future is all connected to this present. It's the, the it's all connected. And from my time in school at Saint Cecilia's and even at SI, there's a sense in the classroom that, hey. Once slavery was done, that was it. And, you know, there's, I don't think there's a really uh, true understanding of the impact of slavery and of of Jim Crow and redlining and all the other things that came afterwards that are still affecting us today. But on the flip side of that, what I, I want students and what I want people to understand is that small little efforts every day make it difference. If we can all make small efforts of working on trying to end racism, it it will accumulate over time. It won't, you know, it's been one year. I want to see where we're at in three to five or five to seven. Mm -hmm. I think it's too early to say, Hey, (laughs) what's, what's, what's our report card right now? It's too, it's too early, you know? And I think that's the one thing that I I want students, I want people to understand. It's the small habits. It's the small things that you do daily, even though you may not see it. You may not even see it. You're like, man, I'm doing these things, but I don't feel like I'm going anywhere. It's, you will see a difference over time. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's the big thing when you, when we, I I think that's the big thing I, I, I want people to really understand you this is not this is a marathon this is not a sprint mm-hmm. you're not going to combat systemic racism because even now there's new laws that are being put into place now on local levels state levels that are now trying to put restrictions on voting rights and so forth and we see it coming and it's like okay well how do we combat it how do we you know and, and some people get deterred you're like you know what this is too much I'm just going to go back to my regular life.
0: You you can't stop now. We're, we're in it.
1: You got to keep going.
0: Well, and that's you know our, we're, we're obviously a values based school, and a couple of, of our values are to be open to growth and, and committed to justice. Yeah, and we have to address this if we're open to growth and committed to justice. And it's going to take challenging the system. Like I we've we've really grappled with the question this year: if our school is part of a system that is yeah. racist. How, how are we, you know, where are those areas that we need to peel back yeah. and, and address those and, and make whatever changes are necessary so that we're not perpetuating a system. And, you know, one of the things that, that struck me too, you know, I live in San Mateo, California, and there was an op-ed in the New York times a few months ago and it was about uh This very courageous girl who was a senior at Hillsdale High School that organized a a protest march from City Hall to the San Mateo police station in in protest of the George Floyd killing. And it was very well done. This one girl had thousands Mm. of people out there. Well, this this guy wrote an op-ed about it, really commending her, but also said, hey, San Mateo, you know, and, and you woke Californians. Take a look at your housing policies you know, it was in the 1940s and 50s that that there were housing developments in my neighborhood that had on them that only Caucasians could buy buy the house. Yep. You know, and, the, and it, we're, we're supposedly part of this progressive era. That wasn't that long ago. And that's, you know, those kind of housing policies, for example, that, that take generations to change. People don't, you know, they, they stay in houses for decades. And, and that creates the character of a, of a neighborhood. And again, an example of some policies that were—they're you know, illegal now, but there's yep. there's still remnants of those policies today. You know, where yep. the percentage of African Americans in, in San tail, I think, is below two percent. know, you yeah, wonder I, why, right? So you know, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> but those, but yeah. but you know, that's that is where schools can raise that awareness. Yeah. Right. Most and, and, and plant those seeds of how to address those those instances of injustice. And, and,
1: and also as well, you also want to look, especially the black communities, you want to look at the grocery stores that are there. Are these places now business hubs where they can possibly get government contracts? You know, are people going over there and supporting the local businesses? You know, I heard there was a big pledge from a lot of these corporations and from other uh, places that they're saying, hey, you know what? We're going to do a 15 percent pledge. That we're going to spend fifteen percent of our budget on African American communities, you know, just trying to to build them up, because we understand that, you know, it, we they've had redlining, they've had all these things that have just happened to them over over the years, you know. And I look at, you know, some of the fat food restaurants that are dumped. I mean, if you go to Hunters Point, I I, I can imagine there's a Whole Foods over there, right? I, I, probably not. You probably got McDonald's, Burger King, Pizza Hut. You know, God knows, in a gas station, and those are those are your options. So it's like it's you know it's the the food options, it's the school districts, it's the housing. You know, you know, I remember growing up in San Francisco where I was because I I was born on a Page and Steiner in the Fillmore district. That whole area was all African American. I remember when the city was that part was all black, and it just. It just got sucked up. And it's, and it's shocking to me. Yeah. 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 It, it's shocking to see such a progressive city. Like anytime I tell someone I'm from San Francisco, they look at that as being the progressive capital of the mm-hmm. United States. And I'm like, unfortunately, we, we are extremely progressive, but we're
0: asked backwards too. <laughs> <laughs> and the per- percentage of African Americans live in San Francisco is continuing to decline. Yeah. People say, Well, you know, you ask why is that? Well, it's it's too expensive. I, that's just a, a cop out. You can build a middle class by building those businesses. You can have policies that encourage that. Really focus on, you know, and that's where education comes into place. One of the interesting things about California I've thought about, especially in terms of public education in this past year, is that each county gets a significant portion of the uh, money for schools from property tax. Yep. Well, for your, the property tax you're going to pay in Hillsborough, one of the wealthiest you know districts in the country, is going to be significantly different than what it is at Hunters Point, right? Yep. And and, yep. and what San Francisco has to offer, or you know what what Oakland might have to offer, or what East Palo Alto is going to have, and in, in their coffers to to pump into yep. their schools. And again, that's going to perpetuate the the local situation. And Hillsborough, yep. the school district has a. As a, a multi-million-dollar endowment, you know, because you know, anyway. But that's yeah. yeah, and and good for them. They want to have good schools. Everybody wants yeah. to have good schools. You're going to do what, yeah. do what you can to have those things, but it does make a, a difference. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Um, th- thinking about that, you know. If, so from springboarding from schools, and if you have any other thoughts in terms of what we as schools should be thinking, I'd certainly welcome that. But I'm also interested in your professional experience and and really sure. what you know what schools should be doing to prepare people to be a professional. And perhaps you could talk about your you know your, your career in, in at Capital One. And then sure. you know and for our listeners, yep. I don't know if we mentioned earlier, Josh lives in Washington D.C. is it a couple of kids there. I don't know how long you've been at Capital One, but. Perhaps you could yeah. uh, speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So I've been in banking and finance
1: for 18 years, senior vice president with uh, Capital One, a business banker, senior business banker, dealing with clients between two to 50 million in gross revenue. You know, I I would one a couple things. One is I have several incredible African American mentors out here that's truly helped me out that are not you know an athlete or musician, their attorneys, their CPAs, their equity, they're private equity guys. And they've challenged me, elevated me to wanted to grow and develop my business acumen over time. And and I think that's not even I think I know that's important. You want to see business, especially for African American people, you want to see people that are doing these things. It will inspire you to do more. You know, and I think that was sort of the trap that I think a lot of African-American boys get pulled into is that we're pushing basketball. We're pushing football, but for, for basketball, you so you got a a million African-American boys right now playing basketball for 1100 division one, division one basketball spots that then turn into 35 spots. So you got a million boys looking for 35 NBA spots right now. It's realistically that the numbers are not in your favor, so it's it's being able to see, you know, people that are actually going into the profession and doing different things. So, I mean, I, I've been very, very blessed to have some just incredible mentors, especially from Howard. And I, that also enlightened me as well when I saw my buddies we're doing all these incredible things. It was like, well, hey, man, I need to step my game up and make sure, you know, I can get a job and I can perform and
0: take care of myself. And so- And you didn't you just start a product business? I think you just had a product uh, hand sanitizer. Yeah, month yeah, month no, my buddies there, and I right? from, yeah. My buddies from Howard University,
1: we, we started, a, it's called Smith Golden Rule. We started a hand sanitizer last year and we've been talking for years about what kind of business we were going to in, go into. And then it was like- let's do hand sanitizer i said well let's let's do it so we're in my buddy's living room trying out all these different <laughs> things we didn't know what we were doing and and the one thing we just kept telling ourselves was like look we want to do something that we can stand behind we want to stand behind a product that's going to be good that's not going to get our community sick and that you know that's going to be fda approved that's going to have a high standard We don't, we just don't want to put anything out there. Mm -hmm. that's going to get somebody sick. And that's, you know, that was one of our missions was to educate, to help and to make sure that it was, it was safe. And it's, and it's been great. I mean, we've been doing it for over a year now and, you know, we'll see, we'll see how it goes in three to five. So,
0: so I'd like you to think about talking to just speaking directly to a high school teacher and what that person can do to really help change permanently our our culture in the american society. What would you say?
1: I would have have a compassion, have an open heart, have an understanding of the struggles that a lot of african americans have gone through in this country. I'm not asking for handouts, I'm not asking for for pass i'm asking for compassion i'm asking for an understanding and because i know a lot of young african not mold, not all of them but some are dealing with some very tough home situations and i'm sure there's some kids at the father sour academy right now that are probably they're going in with their second year right now yeah, um, we, yeah we've had going in their second year in high school our first class second okay i can just imagine that a couple of the kids are literally living two parallel worlds right now where they're going to this prestigious beautiful world-class high school and their house is in total shambles their house is completely dysfunctional the compassion the being able to work with the student, making sure that he gets to the finish line, making sure that he graduate is going to be more empowering instead of you turning your back on him and pushing him out. It's it's easy it, 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 to me. That's that's the easy way. It's the easy thing. You know what? They're not. Let's let's push them to. That's Can't easy keep pace. Yeah. can not- pace. Oh, uh, he's. Hyperactive, I, I I don't know. Whatever whatever excuse that you want, whatever narrative you want to create, you can create it.
0: Can I, I, I had a great conversation with the president of Brophy College Prep, Adria Ranky, and it kind of shocked me. She said, you know, one of the um, most important things in education is to be organized, and technology can really help with that. But if the home front is in disarray, it's so hard. For a student to be successful, at least in our system as it is constructed today, unless you're off to boarding school or something like that. But if you don't have that kind of safety and that predictability, it's very hard to focus and to be organized if you don't have that at home. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. How about to, how about to a, a, a high school student, you know, looking back to your 16 year old self in talking to a 16 year old today what would what advice would you have to offer it's and let me
1: say like so i went from i went from saint cecilia so si was not my first choice i went actually went to Reardon in my freshman year i went to Reardon in my freshman year and i transferred in and I, I might have been the last person for Reardon to ever do that. I got so much shit for leaving Reardon to go to, you know, I got called Uncle Tom sellout. Like the guys at Reardon were pissed with me. Ron Isola gave me hell. And I remember going there and it was a complete culture shock. Complete culture shock. I was, I was a deer in, in headlights. I, I was like, wow. I went from, Probably being one of the smartest students and' was getting top grades at reareding where I was sort of just getting by on, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think what I would tell myself though, at this time, a student, just be true to yourself, be authentic, be be yourself. And and I was lucky though. I mean, I, I played basketball and I was able to make friends that way. And I was able to sort of navigate through the system through SI because of that. But then I think about students that maybe didn't have that, you know, they didn't play ball. They didn't play football. They didn't play basketball. They didn't play baseball. Like How do you navigate through that? That's tough. Mm -hmm. That's tough. Being the
0: one of few, one of two. It's 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 a very tough situation. That that connection point so important, right? Yeah. Maybe that's the advice. Connect. Find find a home. You know, within the within that community, so you can really connect.
1: Yeah, yeah. But you know, was I I had some great teachers. I, I have some incredible friends that from that class I still talk to to this day, and they, they rally too. Like you, the, the, the connection, the bonds that you have from SI are, are impeccable. Like you, you can't, they're, they're, they're great. I mean, even if you don't talk to someone for 10, 20 years, because you guys were in the same class, because you went on these retreats, because you had religion class and you did all these things together and it was such a tight unit, you easily open up the door or have a conversation because of that. Yeah, yeah, you got that. I mean, that, it's that, that, I got, that shared I mean, experience. Yeah, no. Si on, on that. I mean, the, the senior retreat that I had my senior year was was remarkable. I wish I could do that hmm. every year. For
0: <laughs> yeah, you're doing I, it, I no do that way. at a <laughs> <laughs> so can I go back to that? This has been great. Any any kind of last thoughts or maybe parting words or recommendation that you might have? I always appreciate you, you feed some you know podcasts or uh, videos or books my way. Anything you'd rec- uh, recommend to our audience or any last words you might have? A couple of things I have.
1: One, please look up Thurgood Marshall. Howard Grad, Howard Law, incre- he, he was so critical to the civil rights movement on so many different Supreme Court cases that I don't think people are aware of. I, I don't, and I don't think he gets the true props that, that he deserves. The other piece that we touched on as well is the covenant piece. There was a, a case, I think it was Shelley versus Kramer in 1948, where they had banned covenants. However, instead of people doing it in the open now they were doing it under the table where you know if if you think of Compton Compton in 1954 is not Compton today mm-hmm. i mean you think of Compton today you think of the the black culture hip hop nwa dj quick back in 1954 it was it was completely lily white and they start moving black families in there but they didn't in a panic so they can now build a new structure, a new place. Uh, And so they brought black families in, charged charged them higher interest rates, 20%, hoping that they were going to default, bring another black family in and and so forth. So the cycle continued from that that time. And the, the last thing I would say as well is the red summer of 1919. Red summer of 1919. Tulsa, Oklahoma was not just an isolated event. The red sun, it was literally mostly white mobs attacking African Americans in their community. And it starts from 1913. It goes from rural Georgia to Washington, D.C., to Charlotte, to Longsville, Texas. I mean, it's, there's probably like 24 different incidents in that
0: time. Just something just to, to check out. So, good in which and work. that's you know what so important to peel back our history yep. and as a country that's when you think about the united states of america it's an experiment that has never been tried in the history of the human race where we have you know people from so many different parts of the world you know the the thing we're taught in grammar school it's the great melting pot yeah and and it's important that we have a shared narrative a story that we believe in right and and heroes in our culture, but we also have to really be truthful about our history and in our culture. And it's, and it's not, there are so many incidents in such a big country um, yeah. where that happens. Certainly our reckoning with our black Americans and citizens here, as well as our native Americans, just to name oh, a couple. Gosh. I mean, there's, there's so much for us to, to come to understand so that we, you know, we can heal. Well, we really have to peel that stuff back in order to heal. And as you know, for me, and again, we're, you know, come from a, a faith-based place. We're sacramental people, sacramental people that we, you know, we, we have to uh, recognize our our brokenness to really have that grace of healing, create something anew. And that's, I think, our hope. With that, I cannot thank you enough. I owe you big time. Again, just a great conversation. You're the best. I wish you all the best with all your endeavors. And I hope that thank we can you, you know, we'll continue this conversation. I really appreciate it, Josh. No, most definitely, Coach. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have any suggestions for topics or speakers, please feel free to reach out to me at joevollert at gmail.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm trying to do this about once a week, working on getting a regular cadence. So look forward to keeping in contact with you. Thank you.